To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. On the program today, what the next 12 months might bring in markets and the Fed and more. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. It is Tuesday today, the 2nd of January. Good as always to have you along. One would like to imagine here on this first workday of 2024 that we start with a clean slate, unencumbered by the year gone by with wide open possibilities in front of us. We do, of course, in some ways, and we don't, of course, in others. The economy being in that latter category, the markets economy for us specifically right now. Uncertainty was big last year. Inflation coming down, but not fast enough. Fed rate hikes, but fewer of them. The labor market still stubbornly strong. Despite all of that, 2023 closed out pretty well for investors. All three major indices up for the year by a lot. So to those wide open possibilities, weighed down perhaps by the 12 months past. Expectations are for calm, but with risks abounding. Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman sets the stage. When I asked investment analysts today about the prospects for U.S. financial markets in 2024, their answers ranged from unbridled bullishness to cautious bearishness. But there was agreement that in the short run, the end of 2023 rally still has room to run. Orin Klatchkin is a financial market economist at Nationwide. Given the fact that the economy continues to perform well, corporate earnings performing well, coupled with the fact that the Fed has done hiking rates that all lift the market. The most optimistic forecast I got came from Jay Hatfield, CEO of Infrastructure Capital Advisors. We are about as bullish as you can get about 24. We have a target on the S&P, about a 15% return. Hatfield sees little risk of inflation resurging or a recession hitting this year. The market rally may have staying power in part because of how broad it's been, says Quincy Crosby, chief global strategist at LPL Financial. This was not just about the Magnificent Seven, the big, big tech names. The Russell 2000 began to participate in the rally. Those are the small and mid caps. But Crosby says investors are still worried about recession. Concerned that perhaps the so-called soft landing will not be as soft as the consensus is right now. Oren Klatchkin at Nationwide is still predicting a mild recession and a downturn in stocks mid-year. 
And he sees plenty of other risks, wars in Europe and the Middle East, tensions between China and its neighbors, threats to global shipping. The attacks in the Red Sea, if supply chain stress increases again, inflation might be higher. There's geopolitics and also domestic politics, says Quincy Crosby. For the market, another issue are the primaries. We are now in the election season. Crosby says the market hates uncertainty, and heading into November, there could be a lot of that. I'm Mitchell Hartman for Marketplace. Wall Street on this first trading day of the year. Eh, calm might not be the right word. We'll have the details when we do the numbers. We start this next story with three letters, A-A-C, Augmentative and Alternative Communication. Basically, the computerized devices that help people with non-standard speech, people recovering from a stroke maybe, or people who have ALS. AAC devices have been around for decades, of course, but two other letters you might be more familiar with are changing what those devices might be capable of, A-I. Here's Marketplace's Matt Levin. Aubrey Lee can usually tell by the look on someone's face if they're pretending to understand her. A furrowed brow stuck in concentration purgatory. Polite laughter that doesn't really get the joke she made. I enjoy little, for example. That last word is where my brow furrowed. I'm looking at you and trying to tell if you understand what I said. I missed that word. Yeah, yeah. you're uh-huh. spot on. Yeah. So- Lee was born with a rare form of muscular dystrophy. She uses a wheelchair, has a hearing impairment, and can't really smile. The 31-year-old is also a brand manager at Google, where she helped name Project Relate, an AI-enabled app to make conversations like this easier. My own personal test is I'm looking impressed with AI. My own personal test is I will be impressed with AI. When did you tell me an original riddle? When did you tell me an original riddle? So it may have mistaken tests for chess, but Relate nailed the word I was hung up on, riddle. Lee actually doesn't use the voice function as often as the app's real-time text transcriptions. She says Relate has been really handy for communicating with people she's meeting for the first time or dictating personal messages she doesn't want her assistant to help write. Though it's not perfect, for this interview, Relate was captioning in a Google Doc what Lee was saying. The captions are not totally accurate. (laughs) Yes, right now the captions are saying, right now I think you can see the catchings are not totally accurate. Totally accurate or not, Project Relate is pretty powerful. Google says the beta version has been downloaded by several thousand users. At the core of the AI is something called deep learning. Basically, algorithms built on thousands of recordings from people with different speech disabilities and then trained on an individual user's voice pattern. Jordan Green is a speech language pathologist who worked with Google. So what the machines are doing is like it becomes a professional listener. And then you can take somebody who is highly unintelligible, like maybe you or I can only understand what 10 percent of the person is saying. 
but the machine can learn to recognize with you know accuracy of 80 90 percent Green says recent AI advances have enormous potential to help understand people with serious speech impairments, like those resulting from strokes or ALS. Amy Thornburg was diagnosed with ALS 25 years ago. It sapped much of her voice, and she can't really move any muscles below her head. But she's using another form of AI to help express herself, AI art. I think I thought this always watching. Always Watching is the name of an oil painting looking image she's showing me over Zoom. In the foreground is a bright red poppy flower with an eerie looking eyeball in the middle. She created the image with the AI art tool Fodor. Software that follows her eye movements allows her to type the prompts. She called it Always Watching because in public, she gets stared at. You tend to get a lot of looks when you go out. Thornburg has printed a few of these images on canvas and sells them on Etsy. She says AI helps scratch her artistic itch. Before the diagnosis, she used to do big merchandise displays in malls across the Midwest. Christmas decorations, that type of thing. Her husband, Pat, says he's been pretty impressed with this AI. But when and if Amy loses her voice for good, he's developed a pretty efficient way of understanding her without tech. If I do something out of sync, if I forget something, there's just certain looks that tell me, hey, (laughs) what are you doing? (laughs) He says after 38 years together, he doesn't need AI to help translate everything. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. Consumer spending was pretty resilient last year, and that continued through the holiday shopping season. MasterCard, which knows, said spending was up better than 3% November 1st through the 24th of December. So with that in mind, this update from one of our retail regulars about that season, Vanita Cooper. She runs Silhouette Sneakers and Art in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Holiday shopping for us started later than it's ever started. Probably in the week, week and a half leading up to Christmas is really where we started to see the kind of buying that we would expect over the holidays. The next couple of weeks, you know, prices are a little higher, maybe in some cases significantly higher than they would be, you know, in the middle of April. And so this is a period where I am still working to move off of some inventory that I, you know, struggled to move during the year. And then I'm reinvesting that money into new inventory and trying to be very strategic. This was a busy year, obviously, like, you know, with Silhouette, but then also uh, I was very busy launching a new company, um, Arbit. It is a, a mobile app that aggregates sneaker pricing information, balancing, trying to get Arbit off the ground at the same time uh, as the holiday season was picking up uh, for Silhouette was very tricky. You know, with Arbit, I am the sales team. And so I am traveling 
you know, every other weekend, Houston, Chicago, um, going to different sneaker events. But then I like fly back and I'm working a full day shift at Silhouette. It's almost like I'm two different people, you know, in one day, um, in one week, in one month. Um, and so it's a lot. I love being in the store. Uh, honestly, it could be me and one other person just having conversations about their favorite sneaker and my day will be made. Um, you know, luckily we have more foot traffic than that. Um, silhouette is my safe space. Um, it feels like, you know, a second home to me. And so I always feel great putting more time into that place. Vanita Cooper in charge of both Silhouette Sneakers and Art and the app Arbit. She's in Tulsa. Coming up. The name of the game right now is Cash Flow, Cash Flow, Cash Flow. Saying it thrice for all y'all in the back. But first, let's do the numbers. Dow Industrial is up 25 points today, less than a tenth percent, finished at 37,715. The Nasdaq, though, subtracted 245 points. That's 1.6%, 14,765. The S&P 500 gave up 27 points, almost six-tenths percent, 47 and 42. Apple slid 3.6 percent today after Barclays downgraded its advice on the company's shares. Analysts cited meh demand for everything from iPhones to Macs and ongoing risks to the services it sells, like other tech firms' complaints about its app store. You might have heard about those. On the other hand, analysts at Barclays said they're bullish on the big bank's prospects this year. J.P. Morgan Chase rose almost one and two-tenths percent. Bank of America added a little bit more than two-thirds percent. Wells Fargo pocketed a bit more than two-tenths percent today. Moderna is already looking forward to 2025, if you can believe that. The vaccine maker announced it plans to have a combo flu and COVID jab ready by then. Shares picked up 13 and a tenth of one percent. Bond prices fell. Yield on the 10-year T-note rose 3.93%. You're listening to Marketplace. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdahl. There are two big labor market data points coming out this week. The November job openings and labor turnover survey drops tomorrow, jolts for short. Then on Friday, the big December monthly jobs report will be upon us. Actually, I should have said there's going to be a whole bunch of labor market data points because each of those reports has within it crosstabs galore. One that we'll be watching in particular, temporary help services, the industry that helps put workers in temporary jobs. It lost more than 13,000 positions this past November and now has almost 6% fewer people doing the work to help people find work than it did in November of 2022. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes looks at what's going on there. When the labor market was red hot in recent years, the temporary staffing industry was too. Ron Hetrick is a senior labor economist at the research firm Lightcast. Every staffing company I talked to back in 21-22 is like, we have expansion plans, we're exploding and everything. Well, that party kind of ended. 
Hedrick says one reason there was a party to begin with was that certain industries, think warehousing, saw a big increase in demand and needed a lot of temporary workers to meet it. And now demand is stabilized. So that has kind of cooled off need for light industrial staffing. Hetrick says another reason the party's over is that private equity firms often fund projects that require companies they're working with to bring on a lot of temporary IT workers. But thanks to high interest rates, that private equity funding has dried up. They went from record highs in 21 and the beginning of 22 to recent historical lows. Also, a lot of companies have converted temporary roles into permanent ones because they wanted to hold on to their workers in a tight labor market. And workers were happy to take those permanent jobs, says Susan Hausman, an economist with the Upjohn Institute for Employment Research. Most people who work for temp agencies don't want to be working in a temp job. They want to use the temp agency to find permanent jobs. Turns out permanent employees can be better for companies as well. Aaron Hatton, author of the book The Temp Economy, says not only are permanent workers more committed because they're permanent, they tend to be better trained, too. Oftentimes you'll see temporary employees thrown into jobs. They don't maybe even know what they're supposed to do until they arrive. Um, And so that doesn't make for great outcomes for productivity. Hatton also says having workers in permanent jobs gives them more economic stability, which makes them more comfortable spending money. So maybe they can just throw the party themselves. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. So here's a phrase you're going to be hearing more of as the global car industry decarbonizes. New energy vehicles, that's EVs and hybrids mostly, that use something other than predominantly fossil fuels to get around. It's how the Chinese government refers to their low emissions vehicles, which I mentioned because there's news this week of a new front runner in the clean vehicle sweepstakes. And it's a make that Americans might not know right now. Anyway, the Chinese automaker BYD backed by the way, by Warren Buffett, among others. BYD announced its end-of-year sales figures on Monday, and while it does sell both EVs and hybrids, it does appear the company is on pace to beat Tesla's total sales last year, leading the wave of Chinese-made electric cars that is rolling over the global market, as Marketplace's Megan mccarty Carino reports. About one out of every three cars sold in China is an EV, and competition is fierce. There are dozens of major brands making big ones, small ones, luxury ones, and very cheap ones, with the lowest price tag coming in around $10,000, says Tu Li of Sino Auto Insights. What, what I would like to clear up is that these products from the Chinese brands are like cheap, as in, okay, they're like knockoffs, and that's not the case. Right now, none of these brands are sold in the U.S., but bigger names like BYD and NEO have been pushing into Asia, South America, and Europe. If I was an American car manufacturer CEO, I'd be trembling in my boots. Ishwar Prasad, an economist at Cornell, says China's electric vehicle industry has grown so fast over the last decade or so thanks to a lot of government subsidies. China has offered consumers incentives and supported manufacturers sometimes indirectly. So, for instance, the Chinese state-owned banks have been willing to provide credit to EV manufacturers at relatively low interest rates. 
The EU is now investigating those advantages and may levy higher tariffs in the future. In the U.S., a 27.5% tariff on Chinese cars has kept them out of the market. That's not likely to change, says auto analyst Sam Abu El-Samid at Guidehouse Insights. It will be challenging for Chinese companies to really gain a lot of traction in, in the U.S. market, at least probably through the remainder of this decade. Rules in the Inflation Reduction Act are making it increasingly difficult for any automaker using Chinese components to qualify for all-important EV consumer tax credits, like that $7,500 you can take off the sales price. And Abu El-Samid says the more China comes to dominate the global EV market, the harder it will be for car makers to compete for those materials. I'm Megan McCarty-Carino for Marketplace. Tell you what, you can't compete with the Marketplace Morning Report. David Brancaccio and the gang getting out of bed real early every day to get you the business and economic news you need to go about your day. Mitchell talked about this a little bit up at the top of the program. Interest rates and their place on the list of things investors are going to be thinking about this year. When and how much and how fast the Federal Reserve is going to start cutting. However, comma, the Fed starting to cut interest rates at some point this year, while likely, is definitely not guaranteed. Because what the central bank does is going to depend on what actually happens in the economy, as Powell et al. say, oh, all the time. And that uncertainty poses a certain conundrum for business owners who are thinking about borrowing money. Marketplace's Justin Ho talked to a couple of them about how rate cuts' future are affecting decisions today. One sector that's particularly sensitive to high interest rates is housing construction. John Kirk is a developer based in San Antonio who mostly builds apartments. He says you can't do that without borrowing. And... All of our construction loans for our projects that we're building typically are floating rate debt. And so as interest rates rise, it puts more pressure on the budgets of the projects. Kirk says interest payments have gotten so high that a lot of construction projects just don't make economic sense. And in some cases, Kirk says developers can't even get loans. There are projects that are either paused or shelved for the immediate future until you have more certainty, more clarity in the marketplace. But now that interest rates could be at their peak, Kirk says he thinks the apartment construction slowdown is probably as bad as it's going to get. So he's leaving the big firm he works for to start his own development company. And as soon as rates start coming down, he can pull the trigger and start borrowing. I think in the next 12 to 24 months, I think you're going to see a rising market. And I feel like for me and for my career decision, jumping in at that time is the right move. In some cases, the decision of whether to borrow now or wait for rates to fall comes down to how much revenue a company is pulling in. The name of the game right now is cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. That's Barbara Richardson, the owner of Springwell Financial Solutions, an accounting firm in the Atlanta area that works with retailers, restaurants, and other small businesses. Richardson says many of her clients are doing well, pulling in a lot of cash, and she's advising them to hold off on borrowing until interest rates fall. Maybe we do want to update a very significant piece of equipment, but maybe we don't have to, right? Maybe we can wait on that a little while. Then in those cases, yeah, we we might suggest hold on to your cash, conserve cash, wait. But Richardson says other businesses might want to go ahead and borrow right away. 
In some cases, because their cash flow is down and a loan can provide a safety net. In other cases, because they're looking at opportunities that are too good to pass up. One of her clients just found a great new place to expand into, for instance, and they had to jump on it or miss out. For that client, Richardson says it makes sense to borrow now, since the new location could bring in more revenue down the road. Even if interest rates are not where you want them to be right now, maybe you're paying, I don't know, a couple of hundred bucks more than you want to, but the opportunity is worth it. We go with the opportunity. Another business in that situation is Mavericks Manufacturing Partners, a company in Escondido, California, that does advanced welding and metal fabrication for the aerospace and defense industries. Owner Chris Blench says there's a lot of opportunity in those sectors. The phone's been ringing off the hook for us to quote jobs. That's in large part because the defense sector always has a lot of money to spend. In our space, all this money has already been appropriated through the defense budget. This is why we established our business, to service these particular customers in this space. But to do that, Blunch's company needs a lot of new equipment. Blunch recently bought this heavy-duty welding table. He's showing me how he can screw in clamps, angle brackets, and pins to secure a piece of metal. The table can handle a project weighing up to three and a half tons. So we can actually build an entire car chassis on this table. You can't exactly buy equipment like this without taking out a loan. Right now, Blunch is on the market for an automated laser welding setup that'll cost him around 120 grand. There's a 3D printer he wants that could cost half a million. But even though interest rates are high right now... It's not slowing us down in any way. It's not causing us to not make an investment because the cost of money is a little bit higher. That's because Blench needs this equipment to meet customer demand. If he waited around for rates to fall... That means I can't offer my customers that service or capability uh, for that amount of time just so I can save a few bucks. We just have to make the move. And since demand for his services is so high, Blench says he can simply pass along the cost of higher interest rates to his customers. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. This final note on the way out today, which comes with an eye to the calendar, January 2nd, 1989. Trade deals, trade wars. Post-Christmas bargains will be scarce. And five years after the breakup, it's now the telephone companies. This is Marketplace. 35 years ago today, this show went on the air. Volume 1, number 1, as founding host Michael Creedman said that day. We sound a little different today, I think, but we're still here doing the job. Our digital and on-demand team includes Carrie Barber. How about that music, by the way? Dylan Mietten and Janet Wynn, Olga Oxman, Ellen Rolfes, Virginia K. Smith, and Tony Wagner. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and on-demand. I'm Kai Rizdal. We will see you tomorrow and maybe for another 35 years after that. How about that? This is APM.